You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Jtown. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. That's what I want to do this morning. I want to, um, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about doubt. And um, I think since day one, one of our desires as a church is we wanted to be a church that um, um, it embodies honesty and genuineness. And I think we hear that quite often from you guys when we talk about what uh, what kind of kept you here at our church or what draws you in. And, and sometimes we use language like authenticity, which it, that comes loaded in our culture and our time. And, and I feel like we always have to explain that. Um, but I, I do want to be a place where we can... Um, deal uh, with some of the struggles and difficulties that we experience in the Christian life with real honesty. I think that's what uh, sometimes frustrates me about Christian music. I'm not against Christian music. I listen to it quite often, so please hear me. This is not a a slam on contemporary Christian music. But sometimes my frustration with Christian music is it does. It feels very triumphalistic. It feels like... um, you know, it's, it's the same issue that I have with Christian movies sometimes. Like, I, I think there's a place for them, and I thank God for them, but sometimes you can go and listen and watch something, and it sets you up for an expectation that probably will not happen, and when it doesn't happen, you feel like something's wrong with you because you never think there's anything wrong with God, right? So it creates kind of this gap in your mind. It's like, okay, I, I, I did what this guy did in that film. I did pray, I did sacrifice, I did all these little things that he or she did, and it all turned out great for them, but I'm still struggling, I'm still depressed, I'm still anxious, I'm still addicted to my, all my little addictions I'm dealing with. And you walk out of a movie like that, sometimes that's supposed to be something that's supposed to encourage you, but in reality it actually discourages you. So that's not even in my notes. Um, and I think doubt is one of those things. I think doubt is something that we don't like to talk about. And if you are sort of in the older generation here, uh, which, which that's me, right? I want to think I'm kind of still in the younger generation. I was listening to a podcast this week about pastoring. It's going like, I'm actually in the older section of pastoring now. I'm not in the younger section any longer. And so I got one more month in the 40s sort of and then next month I'm in the 50s and so that's like I don't know I don't know think about that maybe that's a good thing maybe not I don't know but here's what I want to say to that and I'll probably come back to it here in just a minute I I think sometimes even as we get older we don't want to talk about doubt because we think we should be beyond that that that's a struggle for a young Christian not someone in their 70s not someone in their 80s and and we'll see this in a minute. I, I, I just think that's a, a really bad view about doubt. So before we dive into this, I want to make sure we understand that doubt is really different than unbelief. See, I think unbelief is what Jesus is talking about in that latter half that I just read. It's like basically what he's trying to say there. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, you're going to still live in your unbelief. John came and he was really disciplined, like really disciplined. And you looked at him and said, he's a demon. I came, and I'm a little more loose than John, right? I'm, I'm eating more than bugs and honey. I'm doing some drinking, right? And you look at me, and you call me a drunkard. So no matter what I do, you're going to stay in your unbelief. That's what he's saying. That's why he jumps into this 
the different woes, you know, it kind of pronounces these woes on these cities that, man, if, if the miracles and the things that have been done in Sodom and, and these other cities, man, that they would have repented, but not you all, huh? Interesting. And so doubt and unbelief are really different, and this is uh, one theologian, one author writes it like this. I think it's a really good thing that we understand the distinction of this. Unbelief, I think it's on the screen there. Unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there's no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But here's the difference. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. Doubt arises within the context of belief. That's really kind of crazy, isn't it? It's almost like I'm talking out both sides of my mouth. It is a wistful longing to be sure of things in which we trust. So that's what I want to do this morning. I just want to kind of work back through this story, just the first six verses here, address this issue of doubt, um, and draw out kind of, I, I think there's two kind of truths or two reminders that are good for us um, when we address this subject on doubt. And I, and, I, and I pray that if you're here and you're in a season where you're really questioning things, I, I do pray that this is an, an encouragement for you, that you won't feel like you're um, alone on an island. And if you're here this morning, you're someone that's not struggling with doubt. Maybe it's never been an issue for you, and you've always been someone that's pretty strong and stable in their faith. I, I pray that this morning will be a, an encouragement to you to, to learn how to help those that are in a season of doubt. In the little book of Jude, verse 23, because there's just one chapter in Jude, right? So it's like really weird sometimes to say, Jude 23, it's, it's in verse 20, it talks about like, uh, be merciful to those that are doubting, that are wavering, that are struggling. And my prayer that hopefully as we work through this, this will give you kind of like um, some, some meat to what it looks like to be merciful to those that are struggling. So let's kind of work back through the story a little bit, and I'll bring out these two points as we work back through the first six verses. So look at uh, verse 1 here in chapter 11. So this is what Jesus said. So when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to the 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John, and so I just want to make sure that all of us are on the same page when we hear John, because obviously Matthew's writing, and he's already talked about John in chapter 3, so he's just kind of making the assumption that all of us are on page on who John is. John is obviously the cousin of Jesus. Uh, John is kind of the forerunner for Jesus. He's there to kind of prepare the way uh, for, for Jesus. Um, he's a guy that was out in the wilderness. He wore really uncomfortable clothes, right? So like, I don't like wearing what he wore is really itchy. So I don't know, like, I don't know if that was like, just like want to torture myself all the time. It's, throw some cotton on, amen? Sorry, that's sinful about cotton, but he chose to wear some really uncomfortable clothes. He had a very strange diet, all right? We all have strange diets. We have all these things we're dieting and doing stuff. Well, he ate bugs and honey. I haven't found a diet that that's what I do. Like, I want to find someone that says, hey, man, I've, I've started this little, whatever name it, it's called bugs and honey, right? The John the Baptist diet. That would be the Christian way to say it, amen? There would be a book to, hey, here's the John the Baptist diet, like the Daniel diet. And then once again, I'd roll my eyes about that. But you're feeling my cynicism this morning. I'm sorry. Um, but he did. He ate bugs and honey. Uh, and, and here's the thing about John. Like, wow, sometimes we forget about this. He's the one that baptized Jesus so much so he knew who Jesus was as the coming Messiah that he didn't even want to baptize him. 
And then he's the one that heard the very voice of God who said, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased in. And if there's anybody um, that we would think would be someone that's faithful, bold, and strong all the days of his life, it would be John. Look what he saw. Look what he heard. But look what happens here. Look at verse 2. Now when John um, heard in prison what Christ was doing, those are very key points there, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So what's going on here? So a couple of clues here in this passage of Scripture. First of all, life's not going really well for John, is it? It's definitely not going the way he thought it would go. Here, John did what was right, and so we don't know the context here. We'll find this out in chapter 13. John basically is calling King Herod out because the wife that he has is his brother's wife, which that's really crazy, but we're not too shocked by that. Amen? But John is bold enough and courageous enough to call that out, say, dude, this is wrong, this is sinful. So he's faithful to the word of God and faithful as a witness of God, and now he's in prison because of that. That's a little discouraging, isn't it? That's a little disorienting. I did what was right, and I was a faithful, bold, strong witness for God. And here I am in prison. So life's not going really well. And then another thing we see here that kind of gives us some clues on why there's some questioning of whether Jesus is the Messiah is that Jesus is not doing what John expected him to do. Did you see that? Now, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he questions whether he's the Messiah. So John has some kind of expectation on what he thinks Jesus should be doing and he's not doing that, so that makes you ask the question then, what did John expect Jesus to do? Well, go back to Matthew chapter 3, and you see what John preached about Jesus. I mean, look at this. Matthew 3, verses 11 through 12. He says this. This is about himself. John, I baptize you with the water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me, a.k.a. Jesus, is more powerful than I. I'm not even worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And look at verse 12. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. I don't have time to explain all that's going on in there, but I do know what's basically John is saying. Jesus is coming to bring the hammer. He's bringing some judgment. So I'm kind of preparing the way for this man named Jesus. And when he shows up on the scene, you better wait and see. Like, it's going to be amazing. The hammer is coming. And what is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus tells him what he's doing. He sends his, John sends his disciples. Jesus says, go back and tell John this. And look what he says. In verses five, 4 and 5, so Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. And this is what John is seeing and hearing. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told good news. If you'll go back, you'll see that all these are found in chapter, chapters 8 and 9. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told good news. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's who's all around the, ser- the mountain listening to the sermon. This is not the upstanding high class people. No, this is the poor, the outcast, you know, the down and out. That's who's hearing the good news. So this is what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus is doing doesn't seem to match up with what John preached. John preached Jesus coming to bring the hammer, and Jesus is doing all kinds of healing. What gives? This, there's a massive gap here. Not only is this not what I expected from you, Jesus, but this is not what I'm preached either. One commentator says it like this. In a word, Jesus is out in the sticks healing sick people, insignificant, little individuals who are here and there, but not doing much to change the basic structural problems in Israel's life. The Pharisees still control popular religious life. The Sadducees still control the temple. The whole ideological system thoroughly, seems thoroughly unthreatened by Jesus' do-goodisms in the hills. What is more, John is in prison and Herod is still on the throne as in fact about to get his head chopped off. What kind of Messiah is this? That's in essence what John is saying. His plans for Jesus and what he expects from him are not happening And he's confused, disoriented, frustrated, angry. He's doubting. I mean, this is a really vulnerable place for John, isn't it? I wonder if he had a, (laughs) as Brene Brown talks about, a vulnerability hangover the next day, right? It's like, oh my, oh gosh, there's no laughter on that one? That was rough. Come on, I mean... not wrong to say Brene Brown. She's been really helpful and read some of her books. Good stuff there. Okay, another conversation later. But have you ever been there? I mean, every, every relationship that you enter into comes with expectations. Are you following me? So if you get a new job, that's a relationship that you're entering into, and that comes with expectations you've got expectations happens in friendships you you enter into a new friendship you come with expectations you get married you know this if you're married here you come with expectations and usually your first big fight is a fight over expectations that you brought in the marriage and you didn't even know you had them until they weren't met right And the same is true when we come to to Jesus, when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. We all come with expectations, and we don't even know what those expectations are until they're not met. And when they're not met, it creates confusion, it creates struggle, it creates doubt. Maybe he's not who I thought he was. Maybe this is all kind of a hoax. Maybe this is not for real. I mean, I know most of us in this room would say, man, I don't, you know, I don't believe in a gospel that says this, hey, come to Jesus and all your dreams come true. Yeah. Most of us say, yeah, I know that. I don't believe in a gospel that says, hey, come to Jesus and your life's going to be better. 
I, mean, I don't believe that. I don't believe in a gospel law that says, hey, come to Jesus and all your prayers will be answered. I hear you, and, and I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. I want to be charitable with you, but the reality is you may not realize you have those expectations until they're not met. When a prayer that you've, and we've been silly about this before, but a really serious prayer that you feel like is God-honoring in line with the will of God, and it's still to this day not been met or answered like that's an expectation that you have and you don't realize you got that expectation until it's not met some of you in here have this idea is that hey man as long as I I really do hard things for the Lord that if I really sacrifice for him if I really step out in faith you know I, I don't know how this is all gonna work out God but I feel like you're leading me to do this I'm gonna step out in faith in the back of our mind, even though we would not want to say this, we think because I'm stepping out in this hard thing, I'm following you in faith, that everything's going to work out. And then when it doesn't work out, what happens? I mean, I think if you're really honest with you, sometimes we'll, what we'll do is like we'll, we'll put a smile on our face and we'll spin it. I know things didn't really work out, but God's going to do something in this. I know this is not really what I was expecting, but God's, you know, we always got the little butt. Like, just sit with the difficulty and be honest with what's going on internally saying, wow, actually, I feel really discouraged. I'm really frustrated. I'm kind of angry. I'm doubting whether this is really true or not. I, mean, I think most of us in this room recognize, man, that just because we come to faith in Christ doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. But I do think most of us in this room create categories of suffering that seem to be allowable for a Christian. And if it goes outside that category, it's like, whoa, hold on here. So what do we do with this? Well, here's the first truth I would say that because I think this is the norm. We all come with expectations into a relationship, including our relationship with Jesus. And so we need to recognize, listen to me, this may sound not very profound, but you need to hear this. You need to recognize that doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. Or I would even say it like this, and I'll get more to this in the second point. Doubt is essential part of the Christian life. It's not a virtue right? Can I get a little amen with that? Doubt is not a virtue to be celebrated. No one ever celebrates doubt in the Bible. All you're doubting, hallelujah, way to go, you made it, right? And I think sometimes in our culture, in our own world, and you know, we want to be honest, we want to be real, you know, we just kind of like to live in our struggle and our doubt, like I'm just doubting again, you know, it's like, you know, oh, hallelujah, man, thanks for being honest, and it's like we get pumped up because we're doubting, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, Maybe that's just my struggle. I, I think it's our struggle too. But, but look, it's never a virtue that we're to pursue, but doubt is always depicted in Scripture with great honesty and honor. John the Baptist is an enormous example here, and there are several that I can walk through throughout the entire Bible. John the Baptist, who saw Jesus face to face, who heard the voice of God, which I would want that right now. He struggled. 
He doubted. Why? Because he came into this relationship with expectations, and those expectations were not met, and so he's discouraged. He feels like he's been let down, feels like this message doesn't really matter, and he's doubting. So recognize your doubts are normal. Don't be discouraged with them. There's not something wrong with you. And just like I said earlier in the sermon, if you find yourself in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, and you feel like, man, I should be more sure. Like, I, I thought I would be over this. Well, the reality is you've lived more life. And you've experienced more of those expectations not being met. When you're in 20s and 30s, you haven't experienced a lot of that. There's not something wrong with you. This is a normal, essential part of the Christian life. That's the first thing. Recognize these doubts. You're not, don't be discouraged by them. So, secondly, and I'm not going to mention second until I get kind of working through the story again. So, look, look what happens here. Go back to verse 5. It's, it's interesting. And now, hopefully you caught this. The thing that was causing John to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah were the things that Jesus used to prove that he was the Messiah. Are you following me? So, so John was doubting that Jesus was the Messiah because he's doing all kinds of healings, right? And then Jesus says, hey, no, 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 go and tell John that I am the Messiah, and he gives him all the healings. Are you following me? It's like, okay, that's really confusing. Like you're kind of wanting Jesus to say something else, but actually he, he gives back what it is that's struggling John and causing him to doubt. Now, what's going on here? What is... What is Jesus doing? Obviously, he's the most brilliant man that ever walked on the earth. But here's what we see Jesus doing here. He's taking two Old Testament passages, and he's kind of blending them together. Now, he can do that because he's God. Amen? Right? So, but that's what he's doing. These two Old Testament passages are in Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. So let's look at the first one in Isaiah 35. Uh, it says this in verses 5 through 6. Then the then the eyes of the blind will be opened. So you see this. This is, these are messianic promises, all right? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf, will, uh, uh, deaf unstopped. Um, then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. All those things are in what he says there in verse 5. He also takes Isaiah 61 verse 1, another messianic promise, another promise of who Jesus is going to be. That's what I mean by messianic. Uh, verse 1, and he, and he combines this in verse 5 here of Matthew 11. Look, look what he says in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord of God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so, so those who would have known the Old Testament really well, like John, basically Jesus is saying this. Look, of course, John, I am the Messiah. Look at the works that I'm doing. They are the works that have been promise from a long time ago look, look remember isaiah remember what he said here of course i'm the the messiah and it's almost like jesus is telling john this i am who you think i am but at the same time i'm really different than you think i am yes john i am who you think i am the messiah but at the same time john i'm also different than you think because in each of these messianic promises most of the time, not every time, but most of the time when Jesus uses this to kind of show that he is the one, he leaves out a little detail. And what is that detail? Judgment. 
Isaiah 35, look at it again. Verse 4, verse 4, which I know we are really smart people here, comes before verse 5. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't say verse 4 where it says, here is your God, vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. He leaves that out. You go to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It's interesting how he leaves out the second half of verse 2 where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. He leaves that out. Why? In essence, what I think Jesus is trying to help John see here is that, John, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven comes in two acts. Act two is judgment. And, John, you're wanting judgment right now. You're missing, actually, act one. And act one, that's where I needed my other hand, right? You see me try to do that? It's like, I need that other hand, right? Can't do two. What? So, <laughs> act two is judgment. And this is what John wants. He wants this right now. And Jesus is coming to him saying, no, no, no. This is act one. It's a time of healing and helping and rescuing and redeeming and setting people free. It's a, it's a, it's a period of time where compassion and kindness is what it's about. It's not the day of judgment. So think about this. This is what this is what's almost like, wow, I, 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 it's hard for me to hear this, but at the same time I see it in my own life. What is causing John to doubt? The kindness, grace, and compassion of God. The very thing that we love personally is the very thing that John is doubting. As strange as that may sound, God's kindness was really hard for them to believe that he could be this compassionate. As Zach Eswine said in his little book, Imperfect Pastor, he says this, Isn't it strange that a life of loving unknown people and their miseries should cause others of us to wonder if it is time to move on from Jesus? And we do the same thing, don't we? How often do our doubts emerge because God doesn't respond with justice to unjust situations? Think about that a second. How often do our doubts emerge because God doesn't respond with justice to unjust situations? Here's John. He did what was right. He was bold with the word of God, courageous with the word of God, bold with being a courageous, faithful witness. And where is he? He's in prison. That's unjust. And where's Herod? Living his lifestyle of sin that seems like, man, he's getting all the good. Everything's working out for him. That's unjust. And that's where our doubts emerge. 
Something unfair, unjust happens to us, happens in our world, and we want God to act. But he doesn't. And then we cry out. This is not just those that are outside Christianity that cry out that. We cry out, where is God? We just don't say it out loud. We say it right here. And the answer that Jesus gives John is the answer that all of us in this room, including me, need to hear and cling to. And that answer is this. Jesus is telling John, look, John, I'm not indifferent to injustice. I'm not indifferent. I'm not like sleeping. I'm not like blind to it. But I'm exceedingly gracious and patient. And I desire all to be saved. Some of the very people that John and others wanted God's judgment and wrath to fall upon are the very ones that are turning to God in faith, tax collectors. I mean, I know none of the 12 had a favorable opinion toward tax collectors. If there's anything they're saying, they're saying, bring some judgment on him, including John. But who's coming to faith in Christ? Who's turning toward God? Tax collectors. Sinners, prostitutes, Roman centurions, even Pharisees. Jesus is saying it's a time for mercy, John, not judgment. And this is good news for them, but it doesn't feel like good news for those who have been wronged by them. And this is what John is experiencing. I don't want Herod to be saved. I want him to be judged. It's the greatest comfort when we show grace, when Jesus shows grace to others. But man, it's really, really, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm writing that wrong. It's, it's the greatest comfort when Jesus shows grace to us. But it's confusing sometimes when he shows grace to others. Especially those that have really hurt and wounded us. And I'm not trying to make light of that. It's almost like Jesus is saying this to John, and I put it up on the screen. John, I, I am who you think. I'm different than you think. But I'm also way better than you think. So if doubt is kind of a normal part of the Christian life, and I actually added in there an essential part of the Christian life, then secondly, this is why we have to take our doubts to Jesus. And I define that as this, because Jesus is not here in the flesh, but his word is, and he's left his community of people. So this is the body of Christ right here, and we've got the words of Christ right in front of us. And so, so we, we must, listen to me, we must take our doubts to his word and in the context of his community. Too often what we do with our doubts is we allow those doubts to turn us away from him. And it's like, whoa, whoa, man, that's a really, really dangerous place to go. Because what is happening here, and this is what, why I mean essential, is that actually God is trying to use your doubts in order to mature 
and shape and form you. And so if you don't bring those doubts to Jesus in the context of his community and you turn away from Jesus, then you're missing out on a very key important element of your formation because all of us who call ourselves Christians, listen to me, and I, I'm, I'm going out a little bit on a limb and I may be wrong. I might have to kind of reverse back next week and say I'm sorry. But I do think we all come with little heresies. We all don't believe God fully and rightly on every aspect of who God is. You don't. I mean, there, there are foundational truths that you've got to hold tight to, that you step into a relationship. But understand, you have not arrived at complete, accurate information about who God is. That's an... That's a, that's a well that has no end that we will continually grow and know and see, oh, wow, that was wrong, right? None of us come in with all our theological understanding of God completely tight, and yes, I got him figured out. No, it isn't, and this is what God does. He takes you on this journey. He's not angry with you. He's not going, oh, my goodness, come on. No, he's, he's patient with your inconsistencies. He's patient with your heresies. And he comes to you, right? And you have this expectation about what you think about who God is and how he's going to work. You don't even know it. And then he doesn't do what you expect or want him to do. Actually, he does this, and here you are way over here, and you're discouraged, you're struggling, you're not sure what to do with that. You begin to doubt, and this is what God is saying. I'm inviting you to bring that doubt to me because I'm showing you how you've made a God in your own image. And I'm wanting to help reveal to you who I truly am. I love how Eugene Peterson says this. And he's not talking about doubt specifically. He's talking about cynicism, which is a really dangerous place to go that we can take our doubts to. It becomes very hard. But look what he says here. The only cure for the, that kind of cynicism is to bring it out in the open and deal with it. And the context of this is within, the, like, bringing it out in the open is not just, like, with anyone. No, in the context of the community of faith here with Jesus and his word. If it is left to work behind the scenes in our hearts, listen to what he says here, and this is so true. It's a parasite on faith. It innervates hope. And I had to look up what, what in the world is innervates. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right, but it means to drain and weaken and leaves us anemic in love. So look at if that's you this morning, if you're coming here this morning, man, you're really, I mean, your unbelief meter is really down. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it is way down there, Lyle. I'm really struggling. Then I want to really, really encourage you. Do not allow your doubts to take you away from him and turn away from him. Actually, it's the means by which is inviting you to grow. To mature so it's, it's not there's something wrong with you no it's actually he's inviting you into something a little deeper he said i'm actually exposing something that you used to believe about me that's not true so go to him in his word in the context of your community and express your doubts
And I'll end with verse 6, and then we're done. Love how Jesus ends this. He says, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. I'll end this quote with, um, from Dale Bruner, who's been just a great companion for me in his commentary on Matthew. I think he explains this really, really well. Look what he says here. Jesus does not shame John by saying something like, and blessed is the person who never doubts if I'm the Messiah. Words like that would have hurt John because doubt was exactly what John's experience. Nor does Jesus here bless those who, in discouraging situations, glow with vital faith. All such triumphal words would have been the worst possible pastoral counsel for John in this state. Instead, Jesus pitches his tune low, puts the cookies on a shelf John can reach, and promises in so many words, and God bless you, John, if you do not throw the whole thing over because I'm a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting. Bless those who are teachable, open, who are willing to bend their thoughts toward Jesus. Don't be surprised, don't be shocked when doubts come, because they will. We all come with expectations and relationships. But when they come, go to Christ in the context of his community and bring them into the light. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your patience and your kindness and how you treat us. Thank you, God. Thank you for the pastoral care and concern you gave John in a real deep struggle and a vulnerable place for him, God. And thank you that 2,000 years later, this text can be such an encouragement for us here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we get ready to end with communion, we ask those that are followers of Christ to come forward, break a piece of bread off, dip it in wine or juice, whichever your conscience per permits. Uh, the wine is always marked by twine. It's just a, a beautiful opportunity for us to be reminded of the sacrifice that God has made for us through his son, Jesus, even in the midst of our doubts and questionings and sin. If you're not a Christian here, then our encouragement for you is not to take this meal, that you would consider Christ. May we consider putting your trust and giving him your life. We always have leaders that are in the back that would love to pray with you about what that means, what that looks like. They're there to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. And maybe you are in a season right now where you're really struggling. Man, we would count it as a privilege not to give you all kinds of answers, but to bring your struggle before Jesus and say, God, help. God, help. And so as we're taking communion, you can go back and meet with them and talk with them in the back. So church, whenever you're ready, come take communion. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.